Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Florida's culture wars being waged by Governor DeSantis in schools where teachers are scrambling to remake lessons less than two weeks away from the first day of school in Florida to comply with DeSantis's book-burning, abortion-banning, gay-bashing dogma. Joining us is Henry Giroux, a world-renowned educator, author, and public intellectual who currently holds a McMaster University Professor for Scholarship in the Public Interest and is also the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. His most recent books include Disposable Futures, Violence in the Age of Spectacle, America at War with Itself, Race, Politics, and Pandemic Pedagogy, Education in a Time of Crisis, and his latest book is Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance, and we will discuss his article at Counterpunch, The Nazification of American Education. Then we'll examine the likelihood that Putin will soon annex the territory Russia has captured in the Donbass along with the land bridge to Crimea and proclaim it part of Russia so that any incoming rocket or artillery round supplied by NATO fired by Ukraine could be considered an attack on Russia by NATO. Joining us is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economics advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Then finally, we'll assess the state of the economy and relations with China as House Speaker Pelosi is in Asia on a trip that is likely to include visiting Taiwan, which the Chinese government has warned her against. Joining us is Matthew Klein, the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets and public policy and is the author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. We will discuss his latest articles at the overshoot, Most Americans Are Doing Well for Now, and China's Unbalancing is Going Into Overdrive. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Henry Giroux, a world-renowned educator, author, and public intellectual who currently holds a McMaster University professor for scholarship in the public interest. He's also the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy, and his most recent books include Disposable Futures, Violence in the Age of Spectacle, America at War with Itself, Race, Politics, and Pandemic Pedagogy, Education in a Time of Crisis, and his latest book is Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. And he has an article at Counterpunch, The Nazification of American Education. Welcome to Background Briefing, Henry Giroux. 
Oh, thanks, Ian. It's always good to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Henry. And your article, you know, is about essentially about Ron DeSantis. And DeSantis is waging these culture wars through education and schools where teachers are now scrambling to remake lessons less than two weeks away from the first day of school in Florida to comply with DeSantis's book-burning, abortion-banning, gay-bashing dogma. And he's empowered the citizens so to sue school boards with these new laws he's passed, which means that any right-wing activist who's a parent can basically sue school boards on the basis that if they teach something that they object to, uh, like sex education, they can accuse teachers of being groomers. In other words, grooming young people to become gay or transgender. So this is what's happening in Florida. And uh, again, it's only, what, less than two weeks away from the first day of school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's happening in Florida, but it's sort of symptomatic of a mindset, ideology and politics that has engulfed the Republican Party in general in the age of post-Trump. Um, and, I, and I think that what is, is clear is that what DeSantis and these Republican thugs uh, really understand is that there's a lesson to be learned from history. And, and that lesson is one that comes right out of Nazi Germany in the 1930s and comes out of Pinochet's uh, Chile in, in, the, in the 1970s. And I think that what they've learned is that education is central to politics and that it makes a lot of sense to basically shut off, shut down, and reformulate an institution that is enormously powerful in giving young people and others the tools to basically be critically involved and to hold power accountable. I mean, you know, John Dewey, no radical, uh, was certainly incisive when he said, you know, you can't have a democracy without an informed citizenry. And these people know that. And that's exactly what, they, that they, what they're doing. They're creating a pedagogy of repression that's on the side of conformity, that's on the side of racism, that's on the side of racial cleansing, gay bashing, and book, book burning. And I, and I think that what we need to take away from this are a number of things that we can talk about, I guess, as the conversation goes on. But one is that, you know, is, I, I believe it was Heinrich Heimler, Heim, who, who once said that, uh, you know, how, did, how does it go? He said, you know, whenever they burn books, the, they'll, they eventually will, in the end, will, will burn human beings. And, and uh, you know, Heinrich Hein, and the poet, a hundred years before fascism. And I think this is basically true. Well, Hitler in Mein Kampf stated, whoever has the youth has the future. Yeah. And exactly. Nazi education was designed to mold children rather than educate them. It, it was designed to mold children. And, and he was very precise in that, as I point in, in my piece, he, he was also precise about how education was wedded in terms of its purpose to a form of racial cleansing and uh, white su supremacy. Uh, he, he said he wanted them to be, he wanted all youth to know nothing but what it meant to be German and that there was really no room for any understanding of history or anything else that didn't reinforce that position. I mean, and I think that what, what is particularly striking about, about DeSantis and, and about these other Republican thugs, uh, is, is their attack on history. You know, their, their, their promotion of what I call a really toxic form of historical amnesia. I mean, memory becomes the enemy of justice for them. Memory becomes a way 
of sort of interrogating the past, not only to learn from it, but to understand the terrible failures of the past on the part of a, a, a country that prides itself in an except, exceptionalism that is mythic when it refuses to recognize the genocide of Native Americans, the slavery, Jim Crow, the internment of, of course, Japanese Americans during the war. And so it goes. So that history now gets rewritten as a form of blindness. It becomes a way to shut people off from really being understand their past so they don't, as the old saying goes, have to repeat it. Well, you mentioned in your article at Counterpunch the Nazification of American education, Henry Giroux, that in many ways, the GOP and DeSantis' approach to education is not unlike what Putin is doing in Russia. As a senior Kremlin bureaucrat, Sergei Novikov, recently put it, Putin's goal is to impart state ideology to school children. We need to know how to infect them with our ideology. Our ideological work is aimed at changing consciousness. So I don't understand why it is that the Democrats and, you know, the progressives and liberals and even centrists in this country aren't more alarmed at the clear and present danger of fascism, which is definitely the Republican project, which is to suppress votes, to create a one-party state, to take over the counting of votes, take over the Secretary of State's offices, and particularly in key swing states. All of what they're doing is absolutely clear, and their hero, of course, is the Hungarian dictator uh, who used this electoral autocracy to take over in Hungary. Orban is, in fact, this week will be speaking to CPAC in Dallas on stage with uh, Trump. And so Trump is our Fuhrer, and DeSantis is the mini Fuhrer. It's also incredibly clear why aren't the people in this country up in arms and making these kind of analogies that you're making? I mean, I, I really don't quite understand three things. One, I don't understand why they don't recognize how central education is to politics and how it's under siege, not just simply in the schools, but under siege by virtue of the way it's controlled by, uh, you know, the fascists such, such as the Murdoch family. I mean, cultural apparatuses today are teaching machines. I mean, the digital world is a massive educational forum that basically spreads hate, racism, uh, division, militarism. And an attack on women's reproductive rights, among other things, not to mention the attack on, on gay rights. And I and I and they completely ignore that. I mean, they, they have no way of linking education to politics. They always assume it's simply about producing people for the workforce or, or, or something else. And so they've missed the centrality of that attack on the right. Secondly, this aversion to fascism is really rooted in a rather stupid analogy, which often claims that. Be, that fascism is so distant uh, and so much in the past that, it, that you, you can't talk about it unless there are very precise uh, analogies. It has to be exactly precise. We don't have concentration camps, and so therefore we don't have fascism. This is just nonsense. You know, as everybody from Primo Levi to Hannah Harant have made clear, you know, fascism lives in different forms. And often it wraps itself in, in the culture in which it begins to, to emerge. And I think that what it's, it's it, the, the protean origins of fascism, to put it differently, are always with us. And I think the real question that we need to ask, and that they don't ask, is what are the conditions that are bringing the surface elements of fascism now to the center of politics? That's the fundamental question. But I, I think they still believe, as liberals, 
that if you indict fascism, you have to indict capitalism. And they don't want to do that. They, they really don't want to take on the, 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 the old saying that if you're really interested in fascism, you know, you better look at capitalism because fascism is basically, in some ways, in my mind, it's the end point of, of capitalism. I think that when capitalism fails, what it, what it off, often does is it turns to fascism, which offers the most promising fix to the collapse of capitalism. And they don't want to go there. And so they, it's like Robert Reich, you know, he, he talks about how horrible this new phase of capitalism is under the banner of saving capitalism. Sorry, Robert, there's nothing to be saved here. So what we're dealing with here in this aversion to fascism and its language is really an aversion to making clear that uh, liberal reforms on capitalism don't work and that what we need is a radical transformation in the interest of, of a socialist democracy. Well, the examples of capitalist fascism are clearly in Peter Thiel, the billionaire from uh, Silicon Valley, who is funding at least two senators and I think a couple of congresspeople. He's literally buying them. And this is so naked, what's happening here, where Peter Thiel is literally you know, buying the, uh, trying to buy a Senate seat in Ohio and in Arizona and may be successful because, obviously, they have unlimited money. And if you, if you want to make a critique of American capitalism, it seems that the plutocracy in this country were very strategic. They realized that they couldn't, uh, you know, after Goldwater uh, got drubbed, they realized you can't take over this country electorally, but you can through the Supreme Court, and they poured money into the Supreme Court races, and now they've got an incredibly right-wing Supreme Court that's out to destroy the government and limit its ability to do just about anything. So uh, the Koch brothers and, uh, and company are absolutely smiling all the way to the bank. So I see what you're saying about capitalism. I don't know whether at this point we have the luxury of arguing about socialism. It would seem to our the priority has to be to save America from fascism. You know, I, you know, I, I agree. I, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we had, you had mentioned earlier, you know, the Senate race in Ohio, which, of course, J.D. Vance is the person who is running, who, who basically is, is unapologetic, uh, it, it seems to me, about his own fascist instincts. I mean, he claims that, for instance, he wants to eliminate anybody on the left from the universities. Or if you look at Texas and you look at the assistant attorney general, uh, the attorney general in Texas, who, who is just mind blowing. In, in, in terms of the way in which these people reiterate and reproduce uh, what we see going on in Hungary. I mean, you had talked about Orban. I think that Orban, I wrote a long piece on Orban. Orban is very interesting because he's now the model for these people. He's clear about how he hates democracy. He claims it doesn't work. It's outdated. He claims it's, a, it's an offshoot of a form of modernity that is useless, is out of whack. And he argues for illiberal democracy. And we know what that means. I mean, this is an overt sort of appeal to basically the, a form of legitimation that attacks at its, at its most severe, it seems to me, any notion of equity, equality, freedom and justice. I mean, Orban is an outright gay basher. He has recently said he doesn't believe that anybody who's not white uh, should be an, a Hungarian citizen. Uh, he's a guy who believes in racial cleansing. He, he's the 21st century version of, a, uh, version of a living 
modern form of fascist politics. And the Tucker Carlson's of the world, of, of course, the, the uh, DeSantis and all these others are, are basically in line with this. So I, I just don't understand why the language of fascism is not in use here. I, I mean, other than the way I've tried to explain it. Well, just in closing, though, uh, Henry Giroux, DeSantis is, in some polls, he's ahead of Trump. And we don't know. Trump is obviously, you know, has always been mentally unstable and seems to be getting even worse. So we don't know whether or not he's going to last this election cycle till 2024. But DeSantis is, you know, absolutely smarter and more strategic. And he's just as dangerous and even more of a thug because he's, you know, more could be more effective. So I, I, think, I find, yeah, I, I think it was interesting about DeSantis is that he, he's smarter. He, 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 he's a bulldog. He fights back. I mean, you know, he, he's a cover in, in some ways for the, the guy who's running, of, of course, for the governor of Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano. I mean, who's basically an overt white Christian nationalist. I mean, this is another element that we have yet to talk about in this discourse. And that is that the, the right wing uh, white nationalist Christian extremist and the role they're playing, both in the attack on schools and the furthering and the advancing of this kind of neoliberal fascism, this updated form of fascism in the United States. The, the Democrats just simply seem blind to this. I mean, they they focus on very single issues like the reversal of Roe versus Wade, and they talk about that, but they have no way of developing a more comprehensive politics that really signals the urgency of the tipping of the United States into the abyss of fascism. Well, Henry Giroux, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, thanks. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Henry Giroux, who's a world-renowned educator, author, and public intellectual, who currently holds a McMaster University professor for scholarship in the public interest, and he's also the Paolo Fier Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. And his most recent books include Disposable Futures, The Violence in the Age of Spectacle, America at War with Itself, Race, Politics, and Pandemic Pedagogy, Education in a Time of Crisis. And his latest book is Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. And he has an article, Counterpunch, The Nazification of American Education. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the likelihood that Putin will soon annex the territory he has captured from Ukraine and declare it part of Russia so that any attack on that territory would be considered an attack by NATO. It's not for you and me, girl. No, 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 no. Europe's an unhappy land. No, no, no. They've had their fascist group thing. Colors, sisters, you don't need the fascist group thing. Colors, sisters, you don't need the fascist group thing. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Asland. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it seems that there's a real likelihood that Putin will soon annex the territory Russia has captured in the Donbass, along with the land bridge to Crimea, and proclaim that territory part of Russia, which then could mean that any incoming rocket or artillery round supplied by NATO fired by Ukraine, Russia could consider them an attack on Russia by NATO. That seems to be in the cards, and that may be the next stage in escalating uh, this war, uh, possibly to the nuclear threshold. What do you think, uh, Anders? Yeah, I uh, think that uh, Putin is intent on doing this, as you, you say, to take uh, four regions of uh, Ukraine uh, on top of uh, Crimea uh, and uh, turn them into uh, uh, Russian territory. Uh, I don't think that will have much of an effect. Uh, I do think that this is a reason for Ukraine now to try to do whatever they can in terms of the military offensive, essentially to take uh, Kherson, the big uh, port on the Black Sea and the uh, region uh, around it in the course of August. What we hear in rumors is that Putin intends uh, to do this on the 15th of September, first having a fake uh, referendum and then immediately afterwards um, annex uh, these uh, territories uh, to, uh, to Russia. With regard to nuclear arms, I think that this is a red herring, a straw man that should not be taken seriously. I think that Putin is quite rational. We know that he has uh, hidden away five super yachts. So this is a man who wants to enjoy uh, a life and uh, he wants uh, to continue living. If he uses nuclear arms, he won't uh, survive. And I think that's uh, perfectly clear to everybody, including uh, Putin. And therefore, I don't think that Putin will ever use uh, nuclear arms. And this is a threat that we should not take seriously. But in terms of attempts to punish Putin via sanctions, we're learning that he's doing quite well with revenues coming from oil. He has a compact with the Saudis, OPEC+. Plus. The Saudis in the Gulf are laundering Russian money. He's selling oil to India and other countries and China. How much have these sanctions really hurt him as opposed to Western Europe, where the Germans are being told they have to take cold showers? I think that uh, they've hurt uh, Russia much more than uh, Putin wants uh, to admit. And this is a reason why lots of uh, Russian statistics have uh, been declared secret or simply not been uh, published uh, recently. So the Russian economy, according to the most optimistic uh, forecast, declined by 6% uh, this year or to 15% this year, say something like 10%. This is a disaster and it's not going to get better because uh, what is really hurting the Russian economy is that Russia can't import various parts, in particular these famous uh, chips that are used now in all electronics. So Russia can't uh, produce uh, cars, it can't uh, produce tanks, and uh, nor can it uh, produce uh, cruise uh, uh, missiles. And Russia can't get these uh, inputs from uh, any other source. 
with regard to the oil, Turkey, India, China, Saudi Arabia buy Russian oil at a discount of 32 to $36 per barrel. That means that they don't pay much. So Russia is not really benefiting uh, from uh, the, the high oil price uh, officially. And uh, then Russia has a large uh, current account surplus now because it can't import. The imports uh, have fallen by about half since the war started. And it's not only from the Western countries, it's also from China and India. All kinds of people and companies are fearful of dealing with Russia, which Putin is increasingly turning into a second North Korea. Well, there was a very interesting piece I saw on CNN where they were examining a captured Russian drone the Ukrainians had captured. And apparently drones are really a big feature in this current warfare. Both sides rely on them enormously. And uh, they, you know, not only do they, some of them can fire weapons, often they're actually fired against because the, the, the Russians use the drones to target where the Ukrainian troops are then to rain down artillery on them. So they're extremely key. But this Russian drone that they pulled apart was entirely made of parts from all over Western Europe and the United States. The camera came from France, the the chips from Korea and, and so forth. It doesn't look like the Russians produce anything much themselves in, uh, in terms of advanced weaponry. Indeed. And previously, all of these parts uh, were not uh, uh, sanctioned. Uh, the export uh, controls did not... Uh, apply to them, but now they are. So all of these parts, it appears to me, are dual technology, so that they're used both for civilian and military purposes. And now such parts will no longer be allowed for exports to Russia. And also non-Western countries are very careful to make sure that they don't export such things uh, to Russia, because then they would become subject to uh, secondary U.S. sanctions. And the U.S. intelligence is very good at uh, uh, seeking this out. So, Anders Asland, you were saying earlier that Putin intends to annex the territory that he's taken so far in the Donbass and the land bridge to Crimea on September the 15th and make it Russian territory, and therefore he could make the claim that any attack on previously Ukraine's territory now in Russia's hand would be considered an attack on Russia itself. And this could involve NATO, or at least he could threaten NATO, because uh, obviously the Ukrainians are using NATO artillery and the HIMARS rocket system. But uh, the key battle is now underway, is it not, for the other Black Sea port of Herzon? Now, Odessa seems to be where they're exporting grain now, which is an, a, a really hopeful development. But what's the situation with Kherson? Will the do you think the Ukrainians can recapture it? 
Well, that's the, the big question. I'm no military expert, uh, so I can't say it. And I see the military experts don't really know uh, how strong uh, an offensive uh, capability Ukraine has. It's not only a question of weapons, it's also a question of uh, tactics. Uh, if uh, Ukraine knows how to take it back in the north of uh, Ukraine, by and large, the uh, Russians uh, left voluntarily when they saw that they uh, couldn't get uh, a, a stronghold. In Kherson now, they have been from the first day of the war, uh, and Kherson fell because of treason on the, uh, the Ukrainian uh, side. And uh, we can now see that for about two weeks, uh, uh, Ukraine very much uh, thanks to the HIMARS, have attacked arms depots and uh, command uh, posts uh, that would be useful for Russia in in this uh, region. And they have also bombed the, the big bridge uh, in Kherson that uh, crosses um, the Dnieper River, which is almost one mile uh, long. So the Russians are then being squeezed on the northern side of the uh, Dnieper River in Kherson. So you mentioned that the reason that Kherson fell early in the war was because of treason. Explain that, if you will. Well, uh, the Ukrainian government, uh, President Zelensky himself, uh, has uh, singled out uh, a few top uh, members from the, the government who uh, uh, gave in to the Russians. There are 60 senior security officials who are working with the Russians uh, uh, in these occupied uh, territories. And the highest uh, person who was uh, sacked was the uh, deputy head of uh, the Ukrainian uh, Security Service, SBO, a, a general in the Secret Service. I see. So what do you think Putin will do if he loses Kherson? Well, that is another big uh, question where we don't have an answer. This would look like a big defeat of the Russian army. You can say that uh, Kiev and uh, uh, the other activities in the north of uh, Ukraine were uh, big defeats for uh, the Russian army, but uh, uh, the Kremlin... Uh, seems to have got away with explaining that these were only diversionary maneuvers that um, we could uh, seize the south and uh, uh, more of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk in the uh, east. If Kherson, that has been held by the uh, Russian army now for five months, is being lost to the Ukrainian, that would be a big blow uh, to the Kremlin, and that could not be easily explained away. Well, apparently the only reliable forces that Putin has are the mercenaries, the Wagner Group and uh, the, the uh, Chechens, the Hadirov's killers, and it looks as if uh, the, the Wagner Group, uh, headed by Prigozhin, the, the Putin chef who's in charge of military procurement, and he's been stealing the, the defense budget blind. He's apparently behind this slaughter of Ukrainian prisoners. Do you have any more information on that? No, I don't have that, but it's quite obvious that it was carried out uh, by the 
uh, the, uh, the Russians, but uh, uh, the specialists who have looked at it have not given any firm verdict, uh, but they say that uh, it's in, uh, probably done, but done by the, uh, the Russians. And uh, we could also see that the Russian embassy in London celebrate their death. Well, the cosmonauts aboard the space station held up the flag of the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk republics, did they not? And now, of course, Russia's pulled out of the space station. So the propaganda inside Russia is pretty thorough and pretty effective, is it not? The Russian people really do seem to buy Putin's uh, Orwellian narrative about this war. Well... uh I read various uh, analysis of the popular sentiment, and generally they do say that a majority support uh, Putin's war, but they also say that um, the support has fallen. The early number was 83%. Now they are talking about 10% less support or so, but it's still overwhelming. But on the other hand, Russia today is a very repressive state. So uh, if I were asked, do I support Putin? Uh, I think that I would uh, say yes, because I would not like to uh, run the risk of uh, being arrested for no particular reason. So just in closing then, do you think that that the Germans uh, and NATO will hold together here on the long haul, particularly through this coming winter? I do think so. And I think with regard to the energy shock that uh, uh, Europe has now mitigated the oil sanctions a bit, which means that the oil price will not be uh, that high. And it's uh, better that the price goes down and that Russia gets less uh, from the oil itself. And uh, these very big discounts on Russian oil are being maintained. Uh, Today, it was reported in the Ukrainian news that the first German version of HIMARS, uh, the heavier artillery, uh, had had arrived. So uh, Germany is getting in uh, online and France has been very much online after uh, the, the elections, uh, the parliamentary elections were uh, settled in June. After that, I have not heard any uh, odd sounds uh, uh, from uh, France. Uh, uh, so uh, it seems that Europe is coming uh, uh, together again. Of course, uh, Hungary has pretty much been forced uh, to uh, uh, adjust uh, to EU policy in a number of regards, uh, including uh, Russia. So it appears to me that Europe is holding together. There are tensions, but uh, recently the tensions seem to me to have become less rather than more. Well, Anders Aslan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Anders Aslan, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the state of the economy and relations with China as House Speaker Pelosi is in Asia on a trip that is likely to include visiting Taiwan, which the Chinese government has warned her against. (music) 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matthew Klein, the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. He was previously the economics commentator at Barron's and has also written for the Financial Times, Bloomberg View, and The Economist. And he's the co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. And his latest articles at the overshoot are Most Americans Are Doing Well For Now and China's Unbalancing Is Going Into Overdrive. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Klein. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Matthew. And let's begin uh, with uh, the first article I mentioned, Most Americans Are Doing Well For Now. That's something that uh, the Biden administration is trying to get that message out, that unemployment is down and... The inflation is bad, but it's going down. And one of the fears is, of course, is that the Fed is in being more focused on inflation than recession. They may be in a situation where the medicine is worse than the sickness. So let's start with that. Do you see this looming recession as something that the Fed's largely inducing and that their focus maybe is off? Well, there's a lot going on in that question. I think one thing that's very important to bear in mind is that a lot of what we've experienced over the past few years is not just a function of Federal Reserve policy or even government policy more generally. One of the big thing that's happened, of course, since the start of the year is there's been a major increase in a lot of commodity prices due to shortages of supply associated with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that means that natural gas, there's a lot less of that globally. The U.S. is exporting a lot more to Europe. There's less oil. That means there's also less, you know, less refining of oil into gasoline and diesel and jet fuel. There's less food, and so those things are putting pressure not just you know on the U.S. specifically, but globally, and that's creating challenges. And then one of the things that the Fed is trying to to balance is how much are they trying to keep inflation as a whole under control, given these external problems, and without you know necessarily forcing the U.S. economy into a downturn. I think they've sort of come to the view that it's okay if the U.S. economy slows a lot or maybe even tips over a little bit. That that may not be the right decision, but I think that's sort of where they're coming from at this point. Um, and that's where it gets kind of, you know, tricky potentially is, you know, is that really the right call they're making? Is that is that a risky choice relative to, uh, you know, trying to do other things that might, you know, prevent you know, if you're concerned about the source of economic weakness or inflation more generally coming from outside the U.S., then a U.S.-focused response to cut down on consumer spending might be counterproductive. Uh, but, you know, we're, we haven't yet gotten to the point yet where that's necessarily the case. So we have to see. So where do you come down on the notion that the conventional wisdom is that two quarters in a row uh, where the GDP dips is a recession? And we're certainly 
passed that, I think, on Wednesday, right? That's right, yeah. So that, that, that information came out this week that we've had two quarters in a row of shrinkage. I don't necessarily find – I don't think the question of like what technically is a recession is that helpful. You can have a period where growth is positive, but if it's too slow for too long, that's still going to be very painful for a lot of people. Um, so I, I think like whether it's positive or negative I think is less important than the question of how is the economy doing relative to its potential? You know, are people – how are people – are they able to meet their material needs? Are people getting better off in terms of what they can consume? Are their incomes going up in real terms? Those are the kinds of things that really matter, I think. And, you know, at the moment, at the moment, you know, we have a bunch of conflicting data. So it looks like on the one hand that actually inflation adjusted consumer spending had actually been rising pretty nicely up until maybe a month or two ago. And it's since flattened out a little bit, hasn't yet really rolled over yet. Um, we'll see. Um, you know, employment is still growing pretty briskly. Wages are still going pretty well. Uh, on the other hand, we do see data. You know, the housing market is clearly turned around relative to you know, gone. It's gone negative from before. There are other things that are that are not very encouraging. So, you know, the conventional um, measures we use, it's not all pointing in one direction. Of the economy is clearly tanking, uh, but obviously, if people are feeling like they're worse off. Or if people are worse off, then that doesn't really help. You know, whether I say it's a recession or not is not very, not going to make a difference to someone who says like, well, personally, I'm I'm doing worse than before. So I think that's really kind of what what matters to to most people is how what's their own personal financial economic situation. But the White House, of course, is trying to, you know, put the best face on things. And from what I'm hearing from you, Matthew, is that things aren't quite as bad as uh, I mean, are we in a political situation where the Republicans have have an investment in inflation and a looming recession. I mean, I, I would think that any opposition party is going to want to sort of make the economic situation look as bad as possible. Any incumbent is going to make it look as good as possible. Uh, you know, where reality is, I think we're not. I would be cautious before saying, you know, we're definitely in an economic downturn right now. There are things that are definitely problematic on both the inflation front and the growth front. Um, but I, I think, you know, the argument of like, we're in a recession, we're not in a recession. As I said, I think people know, regardless of what we tell them, people are, are going to say, you know, they have a good sense of what's going on for themselves. So, you know, it's a big diverse economy. So even if the average is, you know, slightly positive or slightly negative, if some individual people are doing very well or very badly, they're, they're obviously going to know that better than, you know, than we will. And I think, I do think that there are lots of economic data out there that sort of muddy the picture and that the, the headline GDP number is saying that the economy shrunk, you know, since the peak at the end of last year might not be right. There are other measures that the government collects, um, you know, along with GDP, gross domestic product. They also collect numbers called gross domestic income should be the same. Uh, but over the course of the past 18 months, gross domestic income and gross domestic product have actually been different. Gross domestic income, which is uh, based on how much our workers making, how much our small business owners making, what's corporate profits doing, things like that. That has actually grown substantially more than gross domestic product. And while gross domestic product has been falling uh, since the end of last year, gross domestic income has still been rising. And you know, I don't know what to make of that. Maybe one one of those numbers is wrong, right? Because they're supposed to be the same by definition, and so. There's something wrong there. I don't know which is right. I think it's plausible that the income numbers are correct and the GDP numbers are somehow missing something, that maybe growth is actually better um, than the those numbers are indicating. 
But again, even if that's true, and it turns out the economy has been growing and like we're not in a recession or what have you, if people are still feeling like they're worse off, that's not going to change their mind. Uh, sure. So I think it's you know it's important to have that kind of context. But I, I do think you know for people who are curious about how is the economy doing in general, the numbers really are ambiguous. It's it's not straightforward what exactly is happening. It's kind of an unusual puzzle. It's something I've been covering quite a bit, um, really, for the past six months, seven months. And again, I'm speaking with Matthew Klein, who's the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. He was previously the economic commentator at Barron's, and has also written for the Financial Times, Bloomberg View, and The Economist. And he's the co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. And his latest articles at The Overshoot are Most Americans Are Doing Well For Now. And China's unbalancing is going into overdrive. So let's turn to the second article on China. And when you talk about unbalancing, that is uh, debts rising relative to income and a smaller share of Chinese production enjoyed by ordinary Chinese. So exports are rising, but imports are plunging. Is that the unbalancing? That's right. So, you know, for context, we can go back. 30 years. And one of the things uh, that sort of characterized China's uh, experience as a, as a growing country and its development is that the, there was this whole set of government policies put in place in the early 1990s that were deliberately designed to channel spending power from ordinary Chinese consumers and workers towards um, provincial governments and businesses. And the idea was that they wanted to, as quickly as possible, um, make up for many, many decades in which there hadn't really been any investment either in um, you know, factories or infrastructure or housing or all those things. And so the, the, they felt the way that the, the quickest way they could make that happen was by squeezing consumer spending and channeling all that spending and, and uh, into building things that would hopefully you know, produce a return uh, over you know, the longer term. And initially, that was a very good strategy. In the 1990s, that made a lot of sense. It didn't really matter that there weren't institutions that were discriminating in terms of what was a worthwhile investment project or not, because the country had been, you know, for 150 years, either you know, being invaded or civil wars or Maoist revolutions or all sorts of other problems. And so there was this long period of time when the country was just very underdeveloped. And so you, this period of the 1990s, it made a lot of sense to, 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 to embrace this, this kind of development strategy. The problem is that as time went on, um, it sort of outlived its usefulness. And by the time you get to the 2000s, you have a situation where consumers and workers are still being squeezed, but the incremental investment is not necessarily as helpful as it was in, in the 90s. And you start getting projects that aren't necessarily useful. Um, and and one of the things that ends up happening is that you know they were just the, the Chinese businesses get better at producing things relative to you know people's ability in China to absorb them. So living standards in China are artificially low. And there ends up being this excess production of, um, you know, ex basically manufactured exports. That becomes a really serious problem uh, up to the financial crisis. And then after that, you know, again, that was an opportunity for Chinese leaders to say, and they, and they knew this, by the way, this is not like some idiosyncratic opinion on my part. This is something you can look and, and see people like Wen Jiabao talking about this in, you know, 2007. Um, and said their economy is unbalanced and unsustainable and there are these problems. But then after the financial crisis, instead of saying we are going to make sure that Chinese people can buy more stuff, that more of what Chinese businesses produce can be absorbed domestically, instead 
they don't do that for a variety of reasons. And what ends up happening is they just increase domestic investment spending even more. But again, you know, some of that is valuable. I mean, they built out some very useful things over the past 15 years. Um, you know, the high-speed rail link between Beijing and Shanghai is a great example. But they also built a lot of things that wasn't weren't so useful. And that one of the things that happened there was that the amount of debt relative to income in China just exploded after 2008, as, as basically they tried to absorb it. That was an, an unbalancing there. Um, and, you know, this is something they realized, again, was a problem in sort of the past five or six years have been trying to kind of cut back on this. And you saw a big slowdown in debt growth, a big slowdown in, in um, investment spending. They were trying to fix these issues. Then you had the pandemic. And it kind of puts things, makes things worse again in a substantial way because consumer spending um, falls a lot. The government in China does not do what you saw um, in a lot of other places. Certainly, I mean, the U.S. is like the opposite extreme, but even, you know, Europe or Japan or Canada did a lot more of an effort to support workers and support consumers. The Chinese government did not. And so consumer spending fell pretty dramatically in 2020. It did not really come back sufficiently in 2021. Now we have another set of lockdowns coming in. And so, again, what happens is that despite the fact that Chinese businesses are still cranking out exports uh, or manufactured goods that get exported, there isn't really a lot of domestic uh, demand for things. And so import growth has been very, very weak. And so China's trade surplus has just been ballooning over the past couple of years. And, uh, you know, even though income growth in China has been weak and investment growth has been weak, debt growth hasn't been nearly as fast as it was before, but it's still way faster than income growth in China. And so the result is that debt to GDP is rising quite quickly. So you have debt growing 11% a year and GDP is growing you know, 3% a year, that's going to have a really big impact. Um, and that's what we've been seeing recently. And so you have, it's, it's um, you know, and at the same time, they're, they're also doing things, they're trying, you know, for example, they're, they're cracking down on, on excesses in their housing market, which again, you can understand why they're doing that in terms of how housing became so overpriced. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of wasteful activity of building houses that people just held on to as investment properties as opposed to for living in. But at the same time, the speed and, uh, and severity of their crackdown is leading to some serious problems um, for the domestic economy. And, and you're now having a lot of local governments that had relied on selling land to housing developers for their to cover their expenses. Now they're borrowing a lot more to cover the difference instead. And, and the, this is these are the kind of the unbalancing points that, that I'm looking at here. But in terms of the Chinese workforce and, and you know, they're sort of highly sort of disciplined 996. In other words, they work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And that seems quite draconian in, in an American context. How long can they sustain that? And of course, the impetus to have the Chinese workers do the 996 is, you know, patriotic. In other words, we're all, you know, rolling up our sleeves and helping grow China. How long can they sustain that if citizens aren't getting well taken care of by the government that's a that's a good question so 996 my understanding is that's more a thing that people in like the chinese tech industry talk about like at software companies and you sometimes there were, i don't think you see this as much anymore but a few years ago there was a problem i can't remember which one it was but there's a prominent american venture capitalist who wrote in the financial times about how he likes investing in Chinese companies more than American companies because the Chinese engineers work harder and you know Americans are lazy or something. And that was a few years ago. And I kind of don't think that's probably what they're saying now, given that uh, quite frankly the returns on Chinese tech companies, you know, have been relatively weak because the government's been cracking down on a lot of them. But uh, 
it's it's a it's a good point in general. You know, are people why would people be willing to you know work so hard for relatively meager rewards? And that's a tricky question. There's actually a phenomenon recently where it seems like that might not be the case for sort of the most recent cohort of of Chinese workers. Is a they call it laying flat. And the idea is basically that why, you know, put yourself through this kind of crazy grind if you're not going to be getting really good rewards. And in fact, if income growth for, you know, Chinese wages are not really rising as much as they used to and the prospects for advancement aren't as good as they were, the job opportunities for graduates aren't nearly as good as as they used to be. Um, That's been true for a while, actually. The Chinese working age population is shrinking and everything is very expensive. I mean, this one something the government's trying to fix is, you know, the cost of private education for children and, and housing and so forth is so expensive. You know, it's it it's not clear why people would put up with it. And so, as I said, you have this sort of laying flat where people just say, like, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of relax. And and you know, the the Chinese government thinks of this as a a social problem or kind of a threat. But it, it seems like it's a real thing. And I don't, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out because. What people are willing to do if they think they actually can get a reward for it, you know, you get a you get a, a a smaller share of a rapidly growing pie, you're still better off. If you're getting a smaller share of a not rapidly growing pie, then you're not better off, and your incentives and motivations can be very different. So, just in the last couple of minutes, then let's talk about the phone call that President Xi and President Biden had on on Thursday. They say they didn't really talk much about Taiwan, but Taiwan is clearly. A, a hot issue over the possible visit by uh, Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. And we've gotten in a situation now where if she doesn't go, the U.S. will be losing face for backing down. And if she does go, God knows what could happen. So it's a, it, I don't know how they got themselves in that position, but nevertheless, a lot of the apparent conversation was about she warning Biden against decoupling the world's two biggest economies and that U.S. curbs on technology exports, and I guess the CHIPS Act as well, probably was really uh, stimulating this uh, concern that it might hurt the global economy by slowing innovation and increasing costs. So what do you make of that? That's an interesting question. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there in terms of what's you know, good for the economy as a whole versus individual countries and what the impact of these things would be. I think one thing important to realize is that the concept of deglobalization became a lot more popular in the past couple of years, but arguably started well before that. Uh, In terms of China's own reliance on either exports for its economy or imports, it's spending imports as a share of its economy, that actually peaked um, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And so, and it's been coming down really for a long time since then, uh, maybe maybe longer, maybe 2008. Um, and so in that sense, China was already kind of withdrawing uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which were perfectly benign, but withdrawing from the rest of the world and not you know, finding the rest of the world is important. One of the less benign reasons for this is that the Chinese government very consciously pursued a policy that it's changed its names over time, but indigenous innovation is one of them. Um, you know, more recently, there was the Made in China 2025, and that was very much a deliberate strategy on the part of the Chinese that we are going to replace um, imports as much as we can with our own stuff. We don't want to just be a country that imports advanced stuff from other countries and puts them together to sell them on. We're going to make things domestically. And that, that's been actually pretty successful, not entirely successful, but it's been pretty successful. Um, and so in that sense, they were already kind of cutting themselves off 
to a degree or, or you know, spending in terms of raising costs to say we want our own versions of these things, whether it's aircraft or microchips or whatever. And so um, you have that already happening for a while. That's, you know, the motivation of dual circulation is arguably part of that as well. This idea that we want to have a domestic production for a domestic market, you know, for uh, electric vehicles, another big thing where they did that. Um, and then meanwhile, you also have other countries now looking at the extent to which they find themselves relatively reliant on Chinese suppliers, either for individual critical components or for whole industries and saying this might be a problem insofar as, yes, this is how it is now. And so if we change it, it's going to be more expensive. But at the same time, do we want to be in a situation where we only have one supplier and that's kind of inherently risky? It's better to be diversified and, and you know, a more resilient kind of structure and you know that might raise costs in the short term but be better off longer term and so you see a lot of countries in the past few years figuring out ways to in various methods do that so the japanese government gave out bounties to companies to say like we'll pay you if you not take stuff out of china necessarily but you know move add your new investments you put them in say like southeast asia instead or things like that um you have the europeans uh working on how to figure out how to get improve their access to microprocessors you have the u.s with the chips act as, as you were just mentioning and so there's an element of that that's you know that's one sort of set of industries but i think this is sort of a broader uh, phenomenon obviously again with the with the war with russia you see a lot of different motivators for it on the one hand if you are a country that sympathizes with russia you say wow it's really bad if all the countries, the advanced economies basically cut off your access to certain technology because then you can't make things. So we should try to figure out how to fix that. And then if you're, you know, on the other side of things, say, well, it's really bad that so much of our fertilizer, for example, comes from a country that, you know, might not be friendly to us or, or whatever, um, or other certain raw materials that you didn't really thought of, like nickel or palladium or whatever. And so, again, that creates another incentive and say, well, you say race is cause versus not. Yeah, I mean, in theory, it raises your cost relative to a world where there's no, there are never any problems, but also, you know, you don't want to have everything reliant on single points of failure. That's going to be very dangerous. And so I think it's understandable why, and not necessarily harmful for anyone in particular. I mean, you know, say, it, it, I mean, the U.S. strategy, at least as I understand it, um, at least officially, is not we are trying to prevent other people from selling us things. It's more, we want to make sure there's more total production of microprocessors and that some of that extra production is in the United States. And I think that seems very reasonable. And you can see why a lot of other countries are doing similar things in the sense of, you know, we need more chips globally. The, the shortage of microprocessors is something that's been going, like has been an acute problem for the past 18 months. Wouldn't it be nice if there were more capacity? And if there's going to be more capacity, let's spread it out geographically. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, uh, Matthew Klein. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Klein, who's the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. He was previously the economics commentator at Barron's, and he's the co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. And his latest articles at The Overshoot are Most Americans Are Doing Well For Now and China's unbalancing is going into overdrive. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by